Hello and welcome to the Bankers podcast series, Banking in Transition, looking at how the banking industry is adapting to the new normal as the world begins to recover from the global pandemic. I'm Joy McKnight, Managing Editor of The Banker, and my guest this week is Lukik Wogle, who is General Manager of Global Banking and Financial Markets at IBM. Thanks so much for joining me, Lukik. Thanks very much for having me, Joy. It's a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. Excellent. So, look at from your perspective, because I think it's interesting from you said you can see things across the whole banking industry. Sort of what main trends are emerging this year? Do you think? Um, I, th- I think the first thing which is becoming very clear is that you know those banks that had substantial investment banking uh, operations, like the J.P. Morgan Chases of this world in U.S. Mm. or Barclays in uh, in Europe. Uh, you know, their investment banking income has been very, very buoyant. Uh, and that's actually, um, you know, to a large extent, kind of mitigated the impact of uh, of the pandemic uh, on them. But the expectation is that that buoyancy, uh, you know, in terms of their trading income is unlikely to be sustainable at the same sort of levels uh, going into uh, 2021. So I think the banks mm. are very much now looking at what's going to be not surprisingly, a pretty challenging environment. Right? Net interest margins uh, are going to be uh, very low as the stimulus programs start to, um, uh, you know, recede from various uh, countries. You know, bad debts are likely to be high, and it, it'll be a question as, as to whether the banks have provided enough to deal with those uh, non-performing loans. Right. So, particularly on the consumer side of the business. I think it's going to be a challenging environment in, in 2021 and, and, and probably for a little while longer. And the banks are looking at, you know, how they're going to deal uh, with that particular environment, especially from a, from a profitability perspective. I think the second thing which is also going to be interesting to watch is uh, what happens in terms of disruption. So if we, um, if we kind of go back um, 12 months or certainly before the pandemic, uh, there was a significant amount of disruption that was happening in financial services, which was predominantly being driven by the uh, by the big tech companies. And here, I think there are you know a couple of things that are going to uh, potentially impact, and it'll be interesting to to, to see whether that level of dis, dis, distra- disruption continues to the same extent. Right. The the, the first piece mm-hmm. the first piece clearly is um, you know the moves that have been made in China to put. Uh, a much heavier regulatory burden uh, on on and financial, and whether that's going to slow down the growth of number of a number of these very large, you know, financial services big tech companies that have that have developed in China and in and in India and in a number of other places in Asia, right? And then I think mm-hmm. the second thing is, as you look at the West, uh, you know, there is a real move. I think uh, even with the change of administration in the U.S., I think there's going to be a real move. Uh, around looking at um, you know the way in which Facebook and um, Amazon and others uh, operate, and there could be uh, you know action taken against those particular companies to kind of restrict um, some of the things that they're doing, especially some of the things that they're doing with data, which again could potentially slow down the level of disruption in the financial services industry. Right, so that would be one that would be interesting to watch. Excellent. Um- and I guess as we've moved through the pandemic, obviously there was this big shift to working from home and things. You know, how do you think banks and financial institutions are sort of rethinking their digital footprint? 
in 2021? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, Joy. Right, and and again, I would I would break that down into into two parts. Right, I think I think the first part of it is from a customer perspective. Uh, I think what's become very clear is that. Um, you know, a very large proportion of customers have now got very familiar with using, you know, digital mechanisms to do their banking. They find that convenient uh, and they find that the banks could provide them, you know, with the level of customer experience that should not be any different from the sort of experience that they're getting from uh, particularly other tech providers, right, especially uh, folks like Amazon. And, and I think the the specific thing that I would call out there is uh, this kind of frictionless customer experience, you know, where you can get a transaction done literally within one or two clicks. And then the other aspect of that customer experience is around instantaneous fulfillment, right, where, where there is really an expectation now that I make a payment and the money lands in the right place within a question of minutes, right? I, I apply for a loan and the money lands in my account literally within a matter of minutes and certainly not weeks, right? So, so, so I think customers are going to demand that level of customer experience and, and I think that is here to stay. What is interesting though is everything that I'm describing there is what the banking industry is already delivering in Asia. So it's not as if it cannot be done. I think, uh, you know, I would expect to see a very rapid acceleration in that sort of activity in the West, particularly in Europe, as well as in the US. And, and, and I think the plus point from there is what we've certainly seen based on the work that we've done with a number of clients is the digitization that is involved there gives you not only a better quality of customers, customer experience, but it also radically reduces the cost of delivery, right? So, so I think a number of the banks will look at this not purely uh, because it's a customer experience thing, but they have to do it uh, in order to get to the right cost points as a result of the challenges that we talked about, um, you know, a couple of minutes ago, right? So I think I, I think that uh, is is definitely um, you know going to be uh, one of the things that you know we we would see quite a lot of. I think coming back to your question around what about remote working and employees, then I think we're starting to take see a number of banks take a more strategic view, right? And and uh, not just go automatically to saying, you know, people have to come back to work and work from an office or, or turn around and say, you know, we're now going to have everybody working from home, right? They're, they're looking at it very much from a job-by-job -job perspective, the role, and, and really looking at whether, um, you know, on balance, um, it would be better served to have those sorts of roles um, uh, operating operating remotely. I mean, we're doing, for instance, I mean, this was particularly fascinating, right? We're doing some work for one of the uh, uh, globally-based investment banks that's uh, headquartered in the UK, uh, you know, around their trading desks, right? And what's becoming oh. quite clear that even for, for trading desks, there is, a, uh, there is a lot of benefit that could be had by diversifying the locations and not having everybody on one trading floor. And in fact, there are quite a lot of trading activities which could be executed from home uh, and, and, and there could be a number of benefits from doing that, right? So, so more strategic view is what we're seeing in that space. Okay, I wanted to go on to talk about technology specifically in terms of, you know, where are banks sort of making investments in their technology stack today? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are. Um, I mean, I, I would I would see three main areas, Joy, where they're making investments as far as their technology stacks are concerned, right? I mean, I think I think the one which has now got very mature uh, and is going to get increasingly more 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 usage going forward is artificial intelligence, AI, and AI mm. scale. And I think in the banking industry, what's becoming very very clear is that the the major benefits from AI come far more from uh, you know automating processes you know making making them into what we're in IBM calling intelligent uh, workflows where your processes are informed by machine learning and by AI those are providing uh, you know improvements in productivity and automation that are uh, you know achieving significant reductions in cycle time which is you know important for the frictionless i was describing uh, uh, you know earlier on and also radically reducing the cost of those particular processes right so in banking no question incorporation of ai into those intelligent workflows is much much more important than using ai as a way to kind of predict what your customers next um, you know, next kind of purchase is going to be and therefore next best action, right? So that's, mm. that's kind of one, one technology. I think the second, the second one, uh, you know, which we are seeing, um, and you, see, you will have seen a lot of talk about this as well in, in the public domain, uh, is, is around, you know, creating what's going to be a platform that supports a digital business, right? More and more banks that, you know, I first came across this, you know, at DBS in Singapore, right, where they were talking about, you know, wanting to become the Netflix of the banking industry. And in order to do that, what they were recognizing was that the platform on which their business um, was hosted, you know, needed to become a, a much more cloud-based platform, right? And, and now what we're starting to see in the banks is a move uh, which is which is um, uh, a hybrid, right? And, and, and I think what you're going to see, uh, Joy, is a real desire to move a larger proportion of the banking workloads onto the public cloud, right? And you then you're, you're therefore going to get investments in what's a hybrid platform that's open and that's multi-cloud. It will have some of the um, what we're calling hyperscalers like the Amazons and the Microsofts of this world. It's going to need a secure public cloud like the one that we've just announced with Bank of America, which is the IBM cloud for financial services. And it will also have uh, a significant proportion that continues to remain on premise, but will need to be on a modern infrastructure with modern languages, uh, especially Linux based languages. And I think I think the guide I would I would provide would be that, you know, if today it looks like about 20 percent or so can sit on the public cloud, I think if banks are really going to deliver on this uh, Netflix type aspiration, they're going to have to get to probably about 50 or 60% of their workload sitting on the public cloud and the balance sitting on this modern kind of infrastructure. So I think, I think investments in infrastructure, I think is the second piece. I think the third one, which, uh, uh, you know, doesn't probably get as much attention as it should do, but it must do is, is the whole area around security and cybercrime, right? Mm -hmm. You, you will have seen the, um, you know, pretty um, big fines that have been uh, that have been locked at a number of banks uh, recently for issues around operational resiliency, issues around cybercrime. This is an area where the regulators, uh, quite honestly, are not provided, not prepared to provide a lot of latitude, even, you know, as a result of the uh, of the pandemic. Right. I think the regulators' view is that. 
um, you know, ultimately the biggest um, asset that a bank has, it's its trust and its reputation. And if that is breached mm. because of, you know, cyber threats or whatever, then that's really could result uh, in some substantial damage to the economy, right? So I think that would be the third area, Joy, that I expect substantial investment going forward. Okay. Um, and you touched on cloud there in terms of infrastructure. And obviously cloud also allows for like a whole nother level of, of partnerships and ecosystem creation. You know, how do you think that banks can best leverage their partner networks in this time? Yeah, I mean, again, great question, Joy, right? And and again, I, I would think about ecosystems, um, you know, again, again, in two main dimensions, right? I think, I think the first one, is this is this whole area around uh, contextual or embedded banking, right? Mm. Which is where it's becoming increasingly necessary for the bank to be able to orchestrate uh, a an ecosystem, you know, through a platform-based approach that solves the core customer need, right? So customers, you know, customers are not getting up in the morning and saying, "I want to use my credit card," right? They're using their credit mm. card to do. So. And you know that something might be going on holiday, and there are a whole variety of things that are associated with going on holiday, right? And what the banks are having to do increasingly, and we've we've got some very successful examples in Asia, where we've orchestrated marketplaces that bring those ecosystems together, that solve the core problem, like booking the holiday, like kind of deciding where you're going to stay, and then seamlessly, uh, you know, embed into that. The financial services aspect, right? Whether that's insurance or whether that's kind of payment, and this this has resulted in massive increase in adoption, right? I mean, a project that we've done for State Bank of India called Yono, you know, has been able to add 18 million, uh, you know, new customers within a matter of eight to ten months, and the customers are mm. coming onto the SBI marketplace because they get better deals from coming onto SBI, even at Amazon, right? You get a better deal. From Amazon, if you go to Amazon of the SBI marketplace, as opposed to if you go to Amazon um, uh, directly. And for SBI, it's really cool because the additional discounts they've been able to negotiate with Amazon are only available to the customer if they used an SBI product, right? Whether that's a, a loan for a TV or whether that's a credit card or, or, or whatever, right? So you've had 18 million new customers and you've had a 40% increase in revenue, right? It's, it's kind of a phenomenal increase in that business by truly embedding financial services into the heart of solving that kind of core customer need. So that's kind of one aspect. I think the other aspect of ecosystems, which is the one that um, <clears throat> you know, we're very interested in from an IBM perspective, is increasingly the banks want to be able to um, you know, buy software capabilities as a service. They're moving cool. away. They're moving away not only from building these themselves, but they're actually moving to uh, an environment where, as I say, they don't want to buy the licenses, they want to buy it in as a service. And what we're doing, therefore, is, you know, we've, we've now got about 71 uh, ISVs. Uh, so these include, um, you know, some very, very, uh, tr you know, very well-known players like Finical and Terminos and um, Port Machines and Intellect Design that, that um, have signed up with IBM and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be porting them onto the IBM cloud for financial services. Now, the advantage to those ISVs is that the IBM cloud for financial services actually meets the regulatory and data privacy uh, requirements in various jurisdictions of the world, which then means that that ISV needs to be certified only once 
for that particular jurisdiction. And it can then be offered on an asset service basis to every bank in that jurisdiction, right? They don't need to go through and get certified individually with the banks, nor do they then need to particularly worry about continuing to remain compliant with any changes in regulations, right? That's what we're doing through 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 the sort of cloud. So that's kind of creating an ecosystem there, as I say, of, of now about 70 ISVs that um, you know are part of IBM's um, uh, cloud ecosystem that's able to kind of provide these things on an as-a-service basis going forward. I would really not would. I am absolutely seeing that uh, as something that's going to become the norm as, as opposed to the exception, right? That technology will be provided through uh, an ecosystem of partners and not by a single individual company, right? What we've seen, obviously, and even you mentioned it before, which is this huge shift to digital services, and also a lot of banks, retail banks, are now uh, reducing their branch network, let's say. You know, how do you think COVID-19 has really sort of upended banks' traditional brick-and-mortar infrastructure, whether that's the retail branches, as I mentioned, or whether that's the um, actual office structure? Why will rent-a-bank models become increasingly popular? Do you believe that they will? If you uh, look at what's happening with branch uh, networks, right, and again, it's, um, you know, to me, what was very interesting in the um, very recent JP, JP Morgan results announcement was that, you know, they're talking about actually opening 200 new branches in the, in the, in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Rather than rather than shutting down their old old, old um, their, their kind of old network, what we are certainly seeing, and this is a little bit um, like the question you were asking about uh, remote working, right? What what we are certainly seeing is that um, more and more of the banks are taking a more strategic view uh, of that brick and mortar network, and you know what they're actually going to use it for. Mm. And certainly, no question, I would expect a radical reduction in the amount of kind of routine transaction processing activity happening through the branch in the kind of way that it used to happen in the past, right? Now, I think the key lesson here, though, is is customer convenience. So, I mean, I won't name the bank, but the other day, I mean, I was personally trying to do a bank transfer. It was not possible to, um, you know, to kind of do it because of the amount involved. It was not possible to do it um, digitally. Uh, and I had to, you know, wait for the call center, right? Their, their chat facility wasn't good enough either. And, you know, I ended up having to wait for 40 minutes before somebody in the call center actually talked to me, right? That's quite different from the experience that I'd had in Singapore, where it was possible to effect those transfers completely online. I did not have to go into chat. I did not have to talk to anybody. They did set themselves up mm. in order to do that. And it's not anything to do with regulations, with regulations in Singapore, if anything, are more onerous than the, the the regulations in the in the UK, right? So I think I think what banks are going to have to do in the West is, you know, go to uh, a digital mechanism and go to a digital mechanism that does not that does not compromise the customer experience, right? So if this is going to be driven purely off of cost and you're forcing people to go digital and you're not backing it up. Uh, you know, with adequate call center capabilities, so the the consumer experience becomes really very bad. Then I think you are going to find you're going to accelerate a, a move uh, of those customers away from the incumbent banks. You know, to the likes of Capital One and um, uh, you know folks like PayPal and others that provide that kind of state of the art uh, customer experience. So it could be a very dangerous move for 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 the banks. So so I would make kind of two points here. Right, one would be. Um, 
transaction processing, I think, will disappear from the branch network. That will not be the primary purpose of a branch network. But I think banks need to be very careful that the replacement they're doing through online and digitization activity is supported uh, in a way that doesn't compromise um, uh, customer experience. The second part of it then becomes, you know, so how am I going to use uh, the branch, right, and, and find ways that are high touch, uh, high value added, particularly for advisory sort of services where, you know, it's a complex uh, decision that the consumer is wanting to make and they would therefore want to have face-to-face -face contact and potentially come into the branch. But, you know, even there, we'd worked with a client in the UK where you didn't, you, you know, you, you, you could go into your local branch and they would set up a very high quality um, video call for you with uh, with an expert that was sitting in a center of excellence, right? So so if I wanted to go and talk to somebody about something very specific around, say, wealth management, I didn't have to go and, and find that expert and go to where that person was, right? I could just go into my own local branch and they would arrange the, the interview for me. And it felt very much, because of the technology, it felt very much as if the person I was talking to, a little bit like what's happening with some of these WebEx calls now, right? It felt very much like, you know, that person was you know, in the same room as me. And, and you know, there were like little touches, right? You know, a person, you know, the person you were talking to would offer you a cup of coffee and, you know, that cup of coffee would be brought to you straight away, right? So you sort of felt that you were getting that personal interaction. You were going into a branch, uh, but you were speaking to the right expert at the time, you know, which was convenient to you rather than that particular person. So I think I think we will see those sorts of um, those sorts of innovations in order to make that branch estate much more um, much more effective than 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 before um and and when you when you say rent a bank are you are you do you mean um white labeling uh, banks providing white labeling activities what do you mean by rent a bank yes so yeah white labeling we will see that right i mean i think i think the question is going to be and and in fact there is a very effective player in the in in europe that does that it's called solaris you mm. know which provides you probably come across it it provides you know, um, in a very innovative way, almost like kind of Lego bricks that are brought together, it provides the banking services that, you know, say a retailer might need, right? So if a retailer is setting up a loyalty card and would like to have that loyalty card capable of providing uh, payment uh, payment services, then, you know, Solaris provides those payment services. And, and I think there are some major advantages to uh, doing that in that it provides Solaris with the sort of volumes that they're looking for, which are far ahead um, you know, in, in, yeah, and, and therefore they've been able to make a lot more money than a number of the other kind of challenger banks that have come in and tried to kind of set up, uh, set, mm -hmm. up on, set up on their own. I mean, I suppose if you're a fintech that's setting up on that basis and you're going to offer those sorts of services to a number of people and, and create a model, which is, you know, what we're calling embedded finance, as we were discussing a, a while ago, I think that could be very effective, right? And, and as we were just saying, Solaris is a good example of that. I think if you are a... I think if you're a traditional incumbent bank, um, you know, the big risk of, about, of, of going down that sort of model is you lose, um, you lose control of the customer. I mean, one of my concerns or, or concerns that we, you know, we would debate with our clients would be if you, if you look at the alliance that you know, Google is now setting up with these 11 banks, right? I mean, one of the concerns mm. to, to those banks is going to be the loss of the customer, right? Uh, because because the, the the kind of customer relationship is going to be owned by by the tech company like Google and the bank is essentially going to be providing the middle and back office support 
you know, for the banking transaction. It is very clear, if you look at the forecast, it's very, very clear that banks, the return on equity that the banks are going to make from middle and back office operations is going to collapse, uh, mm. you know, to well below 5%, right, in the next, and this is even before the pandemic. I think it's going to get even worse as a result of the pandemic. So I think, I think the rent-a-bank model for an incumbent, if it starts to force them, which it would do, into, um, you know, providing what's essentially services they need to be getting out of, uh, then, um, you know, that, 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 that would not be good news for the banking industry, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so my last question, um, and I think a lot of your comments have maybe uh, given the answer already, but I'll ask it anyways, <laughs> which is really, sure. you know, are you firmly convinced that embedded or contextual finance is really the future? I think what's becoming very clear is that um, you know consumers, and and this is not just now on the um, on the uh, consumer banking side, right? We're increasingly starting to see this uh, creep into small and medium enterprise. We're starting to see it creep into corporate as well, right? That consumers are becoming extremely demanding. Uh, they are very very keen on um, you know a comprehensive solution to the need. Uh, that is their kind of core need. And I think if the bank is going to restrict itself to providing only the financial services aspect, then, you know, at best what will happen is that a consumer will come to you uh, and, and ask you for price and terms, right? And do business with you uh, only if your price is the lowest and your terms are the best, which is like a race to the bottom, right? In terms of becoming a commodity player. And oh. that I think, would be at the best. At worst, what's going to happen is you're going to find what's happened in uh, India and China and elsewhere, right? Which is you, it's going to be a Kodak moment for the banks because that business is going to disappear completely. I mean, it's fascinating to me, right? The second largest financial services institution, even in the US, is PayPal, mm. right? I mean, so that's, uh, you know, many billions of dollars worth of value that's been created out of, you know, payment services which is market share that's been taken away from the traditional banks, right? I mean, this is not new services that have been created per se, in the sense that the banks could have had those services if they were providing the type of experience and the type of cost that PayPal has been able to do, right? Mm. So I think mm -hmm. I, I, I am firmly convinced that if the, if, if the banks don't get uh, into that sort of embedded finance or contextual banking, uh, you know, they will see substantial market share being lost. I think the I think the other point I would make as well, right, is the lesson here is, um, you know, contextual banking doesn't mean that, you know, you do everything yourself, right? I think it's an ecosystem yeah. concept. So it's not that difficult for the banks, right? I mean, what they should be thinking about is how do I bring together the ecosystem and have a, a technology architecture that enables me to incorporate that ecosystem member, um, you know, at, you know, quickly at low cost. You know, it's it's about that rather than you know turning around and saying, well, that's not my business, right? Well, super interesting. Thank you so much for joining me, Lickit. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about uh, about this, and um, you know, look forward to speaking to you soon. Excellent. So our audience can keep up to date by subscribing to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast, and follow our discussions at thebanker.com slash podcasts. Thanks again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.